Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. Moving to Live and our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, firmly believe that movement should be treated as a lifestyle. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you're listening to. Today's guest is a little bit different. His official title isn't as a mover, but I think you'll see his career would not be the same if he wasn't a mover, and his influence as a lifetime mover is on a wide variety of professionals in the United States Navy. I think you'll enjoy this interview for Moving to Live. Moving to Live is back for another podcast interview. As we've said before, we are a podcast about movement. We firmly believe, along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. I've always said the idea is to break down knowledge silos because there's so many people involved in movement who don't know what other people are doing because maybe you don't work in the same profession or the same field. Today's guest is somebody I've known for, I guess, 20 plus years, and I knew he would be a good guest. I actually thought of having him as a guest while I was out for a run with my dogs, which is when I do my best thinking. And I recall that when I first met this guest, I was at Auburn University as a doctoral student, and we used to do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 6 a.m. runs. I'm here with Commander Sam Brassfield, who is stationed in Panama City Beach, and he is a career naval officer who actually started as an enlisted man. I think he has an interesting story about his movement path and also what he's done professionally. I think one of the most impressive things about Sam is I remember running with him when I was a graduate student, uh, and he was, I believe, airport aviation major, which has nothing to do with exercise science. And he said, you know, do you think you could get me into uh, undergrad ex-phys class? Because I know they have prerequisites, but I'd really like to take it. So I talked to my advisor, who was the teacher, And apparently I said the right things or Sam said the right things. And I still remember early mornings, uh, summer and fall runs where Sam would ask me questions about the Krebs cycle, et cetera. (laughs) And if I'm remembering correctly, I believe as an undergraduate student, although a non-traditional undergrad student, he's only a couple of years younger than me, I believe he aced the class. So Sam, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. I think you've got some great information to tell the listeners. Nice. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. So I remember those early morning runs, they'd start out at six o'clock. And as the year went by, closer to the summer, they'd be 545, 5.30, 5.15. Because when you live in Auburn, Alabama, and it gets to be summer, once the sun starts to show, it's just too hot and too humid to do anything outside. That's right. And remember the one time, I think you were there when I overslept and I was pretty consistent and you guys came banging on my window. I think we all. I think we all probably overslept. Uh, 
we want to find out your story. Before we do that, if you meet somebody and you introduce yourself, what is your exact job title and what do you do right now? Because you're fairly high up in the totem pole compared to when I knew you when I was at Auburn. Yeah, definitely compared to when I was at Auburn, but I wouldn't say I'm very high up in the totem pole. But right now I'm the commanding officer of the Naval Diving and Salvage Training Center in Panama City Beach, Florida. Uh, we train all military divers there. Um, there. There's actually three places we train military divers in the in the U.S. Uh, Panama City, where we train everyone, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, some government civilians, um, agency folks. And then you have BUDS out in California where they train the SEALs, strictly trained SEALs. And then down in Key West, they train some uh, Army Special Operations Command folks. Um, but we're the largest place where we train military divers. And I think Sam's story is especially interesting, and, and we'll learn about where he came from. But I know when I first met up with him after not seeing him for 15 plus years, about four or five years ago, he was stationed at the Pentagon, but he told me about some of the dive training he had done. And there were some areas of physiology that I had to brush up on because he was using some terminology I hadn't used in quite a while. Sam, from your, your voice, people can probably tell you're not a Yankee. Kind of describe where did you grow up? And when you were growing up, were you an active kid? Was it kind of mom saying, get the heck out of the house? Or was it more along the lines of you played organized sports or did organized activities? Yeah, I, I grew up in L.A., and that's not Los Angeles, it's lower Alabama. Um, and I, uh, I, yeah, I played some sports uh, coming up, you know, uh, elementary, middle school, baseball, football, soccer, that kind of stuff, but not nothing very consistent. And uh, pretty much, uh, but I was a high energy kid, needed to move, didn't realize how, how much movement uh, played a part in my life and keeping me balanced. But at the time I just knew I needed to move. So, uh, most of my time was spent running from the authorities and doing stuff that, that, uh, probably shouldn't have been doing, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's basically it. And then you enlisted in the Navy right out of high school. What was your thought process there? Were you, at that time, were you just not ready for college or did you not think you were a college person? Cause I know both your mom and your dad were pretty highly educated. Yeah, yeah. So I did not do well in high school, probably because of the uh, activities I was involved in. Um, but I uh, didn't see myself prepared for for college right out of high school. And and um, my dad had been in the Marine Corps for five, six years, uh, Vietnam era, and and I was a bit of a rebellious youth. So I. You know, he would tell me stories about, I'd say, hey, tell me some war stories from Vietnam. And he'd talk about beating up sailors in bars. So I figured to rebel against him, I would join the Navy. So I joined the Navy to see the world and, and uh, out of a little bit of rebellion towards my old man. And I know a lot of people who are listening are not active military and they don't really understand the difference between joining and going through the ROTC uh, or the Naval ROTC, or they may kind of think they know, they say, okay, ROTC, you come out an officer enlisted. What's the general difference between the two? I mean, I, I know that's that's kind of a huge question, but just as a, for somebody who's a civilian who just kind of wants to say, what does it mean to join out of high school versus joining uh, and going through four years of our ROTC? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so typically in the past, people always thought about the enlisted people were uneducated and 
didn't have a college degree and the officers all had college degrees, but that's not really true these days. You, you have a large percentage of enlisted folks that are highly educated, uh, bachelor's, master's degree, and even further, but it's really the jobs you do. Um, enlisted guys, you know, in the Navy, we have different ratings and other services. You have MOSs, their military occupational um, codes, but um, it's really, it's really the jobs you do. Uh, the officers are the leaders and the managers of the enlisted folks. Um, but, uh, but like I said, in the, in the past and history, and we're all volunteer force, so everybody volunteers, whether they're right out of high school enlisted in the Navy like I did, or whether they go off, go to college, do ROTC, a service academy, or, or so forth, and get commissioned to become a commissioned officer. Others progress through the ranks, and uh, and I I progressed through the ranks and decided to put in an officer package and became and got my college degree and became an officer. And what would be the reason for somebody who already had or reasons for somebody who already had a college degree to join as an enlisted person versus trying to join as an officer? There there are a number of reasons. Um, I met a kid just the other day that that. Uh, was in one of the enlisted EOD diver classes. And uh, he, he mentioned he had met me at, uh, can't recall the college right now. I think it was Miami of Ohio, but it doesn't matter. But um, school where he had met me and he was a midshipman at that school. And I said, well, what happened, man? He said, well, I wasn't for sure I was going to get a spot as an officer. And I decided to go enlisted. His senior year, he dropped out. Um, of college and enlisted because he wanted to be in the UD tech, um, explosive ordnance disposal tech. And uh, now he's going through the EOD diver and, you know, he got pretty close to his degree. So I, I would imagine eventually one day he'll finish his degree if he sticks around and potentially become an officer or he'll stick around. And, and, uh, and like I said, we have tons of enlisted folks with college degrees and further. And you mentioned just a few minutes ago that you started as an enlisted person. If I remember Correctly, you uh, re-upped once, and then the second time was when, after the second tour, if I'm using the correct terminology, was due to go up. That's when you made the decision to stay in and try to become an officer. How does that work for an enlisted person if to take the steps to become an officer? Yeah, there's a number of programs, um, depending on what service you're in, but in the Navy, uh, if you already have your college degree and you decide to become an officer, you can apply for officer candidate school. Um, if you don't have a college degree, there are programs, uh, chief warrant officer, limited duty officer, where you can become a, one of those, those type officers. But as far as a line officer, you either get your degree and go to OCS or you apply for a program and go through Naval ROTC at one of the 63 or so universities that have Navy ROTC and, and you get, you finish your degree and do in ROTC requirements and, and get commissioned. And if I'm correct, that's the path that you chose or were selected for. You went through the Naval ROTC at Auburn University. That's correct. I, I, I applied for a program that we had back then. It was called Enlisted Commission Program, ECP, where my job was to go to school, uh, participate in the Navy ROTC, and then get my degree. They They've since done away with ECP. They have another program now called Seaman to Admiral 21. Uh, my wife, when she found out they had Seaman to Admiral 21, she said, how come you didn't do that? I was like, what do you mean? She's like, 
you mean you'd be an admiral right now? I was like, no, baby, don't work that way. <laughs> so that's just the name of it. It's called Seaman Admiral, but it's uh, the new new commissioning program where you go to college and participate in ROTC. And we're talking with Commander Sam Brassfield, who's stationed in Panama City Beach. He's telling us his story from lower Alabama to enlisted man to officer in the Navy. And when I first met you, Sam, that's when you were in that program at Auburn University, the Naval ROTC. You mentioned that you were active as a kid, some organized sports, some uh, extracurricular activities that you probably don't approve if your boys were doing that now. You've got two sons. At what point did you start the running and the biking and the swimming, which is how I met you? I, f- I forget how exactly we met, although I know for a number of summers you and I were spent a lot of time in your truck traveling to a variety of races around the Southeast. And I first we learned about refrigerator pie from, I believe, one of your grandmothers in Demopolis, Alabama. <laughs> That's right. I'd forgotten that. Rosemond Hill. So, um, yeah, I, when I joined the Navy, my first few years in the Navy, I, I pretty much, uh, I started lifting weights and stuff in high school, uh, toward, you know, getting ready to go in the Navy, but never really, really PT'd that much or physical training, but I joined the Navy and we do, they call it your, your physical readiness test twice a year. And that's basically the only running I would do is twice a year. I would run a mile and a half required and, and then work out in the other times and run every now and then maybe to prepare for the PRT. Um, but I was, I had done my first enlistment, which was four years and I had gone on to, um, a C school to learn some advanced. I had been an aviation electrician as my first enlistment in the Navy, and uh, went on to an advanced electronics school and met a guy named Cliff Shaw. And Cliff's like, "Hey man, you ever done a five k?" And I'm like, "What's that?" He says, three point one miles." I was like, "Man, that's a, that's twice as far as a PRT. That's a long race." He said, "Yeah, we let's do one." And I was like, "Okay, well, I'll try it. Sure." So he taught me to sign up for this 5K and, you know, Sunday morning, I think it was a Sunday or a Saturday morning, I woke up early, got all ready, went out there waiting on him, and here he comes driving up in his pickup truck. He's been out all night partying. He's like, you ready to go? I'm like, sure, are you ready? He's like, yeah, I'll be good. So we went out, did a 5K, and that really got me going. I was like, man, that was a lot of fun. So I started running, and as I mentioned, doing the PRT twice a year, my times weren't bad. I mean, I would be middle or the front of the pack, and I only ran twice a year. So I started running. I started looking into, hey, how can I get a little faster to do better on these PRTs? And and uh, one thing led to another. I started running more. And then when I went to San Diego, <clears throat> it was my next duty station, um, I, uh, I got into mountain biking. So... Um, this was, so this was in, in, uh, 93, 92, no, 93. I got into mountain biking and, uh, uh, people that are into mountain biking probably remember 92, 93 is about when the first time front, uh, front suspension came out. Like before that, everything was like, there was no front suspension. I got into riding mountain bikes and then I got into doing some races and then I read, uh, uh, flyer it said hey triathlon I was like well that sounds cool um so I I signed up for a triathlon and that's kind of how I got into running in triathlon before that it was just weightlifting and doing my PRT twice a year and I'm curious uh starting when you started doing this I know San Diego is a fairly active community um 
Auburn, Alabama, there are pockets of people I think you could say are active. What was the impression of your other uh, ROTC members, if you can remember your, your your classmates, where you were the guy that I remember you'd run with us and then you'd say, I, I can't, I, I got to leave early because I got to go to PT. And I think if I remember correctly, you had to go to PT a couple times a month and maybe once a quarter you had to go down to Panama City for some testing. What was the impression of the other people that you were in the program with where you were clearly doing well above and beyond what was required for the minimal requirements or even the maximal requirements for a Naval ROTC uh, student or candidate? Yeah. Um, so uh, it was once a week we had the PT. We had to get together in PT. I think they do it three days a week now, but um, uh, once a week. But I also would I signed up to PT with the Marines because at the Navy ROTC unit, you have the Marine options and the Navy options. So the Marine options back then were PT in three days a week. So I would PT with the Marines during a certain season. I can't remember if it was the spring or the fall. They would let Navy guys to come come PT with them, and I'd sign up and go PT with them. But to answer your question, a lot of the ROTC uh, the Navy ROTC kids, they weren't really into PT. Um, we had a big contingency of nuclear future nuclear power officers, and that's just like not their thing. Um, although there's some studs, don't get me wrong, there's some phenomenal athletes in that community. Um, but they would even tell you, those studs would even tell you, as a general rule, that's just not their thing. Um, but uh, there, I would say there were a number of folks. Um, you probably remember some of the guys that, that would come out with us every now and then, Bert Danner, um, Jeff Townsend, who's now a, an EOD officer. He and I are, are like, I just saw him. He's recently in command. Now he's up in the Pentagon, so we're kind of trading spots. Um, there was a number of guys that would come out and peek and run with us that were Navy ROTC guys. Matt Wolf, who's who's I probably shouldn't even tell you what he does now, but he's one of those those meat eaters, you know, that, that does really cool stuff. Uh, he just left command of SEAL Team 2. Um, but anyway, so there was a few, but as a general rule to answer your question, most people weren't into it. And I know one of the things that's a problem for anybody who stays active and who values movement is as you get older and your career develops and you're fortunate enough to get a family all these responsibilities, a lot of times physical activity takes a back seat and people will say, I just don't have time anymore. And I know as an active military officer, I know there's times when you've been stationed overseas. I know you have a wife and two kids. And I also know for the fact that you filled out a bio for me that at some point in the relatively near future, the next few years, you're going to try to run a hundred miler. So clearly you didn't take a number of years off and all of a sudden when you hit 45 or so say, you know, I think I'm going to start getting moving again. What was it over the years that made movement part of the priorities in your life along with your job and your family? Yeah, I, I'll tell you, Ren, Ren my wife tell, gets mad at me, but I, I think a lot of times I tell her, you know, that's the solution to any problem. Hey, just go, go exercise, go run, go do something, go move. Um, and, and I've remembered that for years. And I will tell you, soon after get commissioning and being on a ship, and um, it was very difficult. I made it happen, um, but it was very difficult. I would do stuff like ride my bike to work 15, 17 miles each way um, a few days a week. I would do whatever I could to utilize that time to, you know, to uh, 
double up on, on what I was doing to use the time well, but it was always difficult. And then I shattered my, in 2000, let's see, 2004, I shattered my tib fib in a parachuting accident. So I, I still have plates and screws. I have three plates and 11 screws in my left ankle. And that really took a lot of wind out of my sail. Um, but I continued to do something. And, uh, you know, when, when the doctor or the orthopedic surgeon told me, Hey, just give, give you a heads up. You might not ever run again. I took that on as a challenge. I'm like, okay, we'll see about that. Bubba. Um, but there's been, you know, fits and starts where it's been more difficult than others. Um, I've also been very fortunate in, in having some jobs where it was part of my lifestyle. Uh, I was the XO at dive school at NDSCC from 2010 to 12. And for people who don't know terminology, what is XO? Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. Executive officer. So I was like, as my wife, who's a school teacher refers to as I was like the vice principal. And now I'm back as the commanding officer as the principal. So that, that kind of, uh, explains it. But as the XO, I was able to, um, uh, and I'd come from a very arduous job at SOCOM, traveling a lot, coming and going. I mean, I was chronically fatigued just from international travel and doing the job. Um, and I came here and I was able to get back in somewhat good shape. Um, but I had a number of jobs where, where they were, you know, uh, in my community, physical fitness is considered very important. So not just in the military, but in my community. And, and, and it doesn't hurt that I enjoy it. You know, I really do. I enjoy moving. It does something. You mentioned you do your best thinking out on a run. I do my best thinking. Um, my current XO that works for me, he's not a big runner, so we don't run together much. But my previous XO, Joe Sandoval, and I, we would solve all our problems in the hour in the morning we did our run. Um, I mean, we would, we would go for a run and we'd chat and, you know, it's kind of, some people would be like, Oh, you're, you're dealing with work while you're exercising, but we would solve all our problems. We come up with some thoughts. Oh, wow. You know? So now I'm mainly my runs, my, my command master chief, my senior enlisted runs with me on occasion. Um, and, uh, but a lot of times when I run in the morning, especially if I have a brief or something to do, I think through it, you know? Um, and, and, and it, 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 I kind of got off your question there, but bottom line is it's, it's, uh, it's done a lot for me mentally and physically. It's kept me going. And I realize that I always go back to it, even though sometimes there's difficult times to get the PT in, you know, it's important. And you just, you just do it. I know I li- I'm living here in the Pittsburgh area. And one of the reasons I started my other podcast fit lab Pittsburgh is because there are pockets of people that are active, but it's not the norm. Do you think the uh, duty paths that you chose, I know you mentioned that some of the Naval ROTC students at Auburn were future nuclear engineers and nuclear sub-officers, so physical activity wasn't really their thing, even though some of them were very good. Do you think the path that you chose as an officer to be in, uh, involved with diving in various realms, do you think that kind of puts you in a community where physical fitness was more important than maybe some of the other assignments that an officer could could take on or, or career paths that an officer could take on because literally in many cases you are under the water and the physical fitness is important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, you mentioned I was an aviation management uh, major at Auburn because that's because I wanted to be a pilot. 
and it is enlisted guy. I had been a backseater and I was an aviation electrician and I just thought I want to be a pilot. Well, when I got commissioned at 29 years old, my eyesight wasn't perfect. And back then they couldn't fix your eyes or they didn't, they didn't do surgery to fix your eyes. So, so I couldn't go pilot. So I started looking at other options and I'll tell you, I quote John Wooden all the time where he said, things work out. You know, he's got a lot of great quotes, but one of my favorites is things work out best for people who make the best of the way things work out. And uh, EOD fell in my lap. Like I couldn't go pilot. And I found out about this EOD officer program and, and, and I went that route and I'm a much better fit than I ever would have been um, as a pilot. I'd probably be out by now. Um, not that pilots aren't fit and they're not into movement because a lot of them are. It's just a much better, it's, it's, it's just more of our day-to-day activities. And you've mentioned EOD a number of times, again, for the civilians who aren't aware. What, what is EOD exactly? Explosive Ordnance Disposal. So we do, we, we, um, we handle explosive hazards. Uh, all services have EOD, Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, and Marines. Navy, the thing that sets us apart is uh, we handle stuff in the water. So, you know, uh, as the Army says, if, if you find a piece of ordnance, just piss on it and call the Navy. So, uh, so, yeah, so we handle anything in the water. But what that means is we have a different level of, of, of text, uh, EOD text. And they'll tell you, other services will tell you, we, we, our guys, all guys and gals, um, which we've had females in our community for many, many years um, doing great stuff. Um, uh, and they, they uh, um, we do dive school and then we do EOD school. And then our EOD school is about five to six months longer than the other services because we have to do the underwater piece. We have to learn all the underwater ordinance and, and handle, you know, diving on them and handling render safe procedures and so forth. So, um, Navy EOD is, is, uh, as I used to say when I worked for the army in Iraq is we ain't perfect, but we're still the best. <laughs> Other services will get a kick out of that, but it's true. So in addition to having the skills to neutralize, if that's the correct terminology, explosive devices, you have the ability to do it well underwater, which for most of us is a very unnatural environment compared to walking around on land. Yeah, it's unnatural for everyone. You're absolutely right. So I'm curious, you decide you're not, you uh, can't be a pilot because the eyes let you down. I like to say the reason I'm not a professional baseball player is I couldn't hit a curveball. The eyes let me down. So I think it worked out for both of us. Yeah. But I'm curious with uh, as somebody who came from a triathlon background by the time and a swim, had done some swimming, including a couple of Ironmen, by the time you got into this EOD, for the training, for the diving, did the swimming background help or is, was this something, an entirely new skill that some, if somebody came in without your background as a fairly skilled swimmer, as a triathlete, it's like it wouldn't really have benefited them? Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I think it helped me be successful in the pool. We call it aquatic adaptability. Um, but I will tell you, I know a number of people that have come into our program with not a swimming background. My, I mentioned my previous XO, Joe Sandoval, the one that we used to solve all the world's problems in an hour run in the morning. Um, he's from New Mexico. And, and he has an interesting story. And I'm going to tell his whole story. But he says when he showed up at dive school, he couldn't swim. 
I believe he could swim, but the point is, is he wasn't very good swimmer. Um, grew up in New Mexico, um, and and but he got there early enough, a few months early, where they put him in our training team, where we we get people prepared for the school, and and he became very proficient. Biggest thing is he had the mindset and the decision that I'm going to be successful. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful. Um, you know, just like any competitive athlete, they're like, all right, I'm going to count calories. I'm going to shave my body. I'm going to do this, this, and this, even though it might, you know, we all know shaving your body ain't going to do much for you, but we still, some folks still do it. Right. But the point is, is he came in there with that attitude and he was very successful. And, uh, one of probably one of the most phenomenal EOD officers I've ever worked with. Um, and you know, he came in not with a swimming background. So to answer your question, I think it helped me, but it's definitely not a requirement. And my time at ROTC, I don't think we mentioned this, but prior to me being the CEO, I was fortunate enough to get a job working at uh, the NROTC unit at Vanderbilt, in Nashville. And um, we were able to, you know, uh, encourage, like, it was mainly my job was there was a bunch of things teaching. I was the executive officer doing a bunch of other stuff, but part of the reason my community put me there is to set some expectations and for recruiting of potential candidates. And what I used to tell these kids when they would come in as a freshman is you don't even have to be a swimmer. If you want to do this, you got at least three years before you're a senior when you do your service assignment portion where you just, they determine where you're going to go in the Navy or the Marine Corps, where in three years, you can go from having no skills or no ability to being very good. Some be people much better than others, right? Um, think of Jim Glover. Do you remember Jim getting in the pool when he, like, a buddy of ours that went to Auburn with us? The lifeguards were laughing at him his first year getting in the pool. And then Jim, Jim Glover became a phenomenal triathlete. He was already a really good cyclist. But the point is, is like, there's, that's the people we want also. People that have the mindset, they don't have to be Olympic swimmer. And we've also, I've seen guys and gals show up at dive school, uh, phenomenal swimmers, collegiate swimmers, and not do well. Because that was their only strength, you know? And it always comes easy to them. So I don't know if they answer your question or not, but I think it does. I think it does. And I think uh, one of the things that is of interest for people who, want to move all of their life or they want to influence people to move all of their life is you've hit on a point that whether it was accidentally finding out as a kid that, Hey, I'm just somebody who needs to move because to some extent it kept you out of trouble or kept you getting out of getting caught as trouble. And then as you were older, you learn rather than it's keeping me out of trouble, maybe it calms me or it allows me to think through things that maybe when I got up that morning or when I left work, it's like, that was a big problem and you went for a run and all of a sudden you finished, either you had a solution or it wasn't such a big problem. Is this something through your career? Because at this point in time, you're a commander in the, in the, uh, in the U S Navy. And you know, when I knew you, you were just a, a Naval ROTC student, is this something in your career as you've mentored and counseled younger sailors that you've tried to incorporate or explain to them the benefits that movement has had with you and with the relationships that you've had with other people because of the choice that you've made to say, I'm going to be active as much as I can 
when my job and when my time allows me to do that and when I don't have a broken ankle. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know how much I voice it, but I try to live it and set the example um, more so than, than voice it. Maybe I need to explain it more um, for what it, what all it can do. But I, th- I think I'm more set the example than, than uh, every class. I would say every class, not every class that comes here, um, but pretty much as much as possible. I do. We have, we have certain fitness tests we have to do when they come here and before they leave. And I get out with classes all the time and, and do it with them. Um, and then, you know, I also have a saying, it ain't cool to talk about what you used to could do. So don't ask me how fast I used to be. I ain't gonna talk about it. Um, but, but point is, is to get out there and show them, Hey, you're still going to do it. You're still not intimidated by it. And, and quite honestly, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to toot my horn, but I, I'm in the top third or maybe sometimes, you know, it depends on what class it is. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't matter. All that matters is now what you do now and get out there and, and set the example and, and enjoy it. Um, I know one of the reasons with uh, moving to live is treating movement as a lifestyle and why I want to tell the stories of people in addition to just sometimes what's dry as far as their jobs is very often young professionals. And I would imagine this is also tr- true if they're young officers in the military um, or even people who are private citizens or people who aren't in the movement profession, they see somebody who's in a position like you, you know, you're in charge of the EOD dive school in Panama city. And they're like, wow, this is like this big special person. He must be somebody who is just phenomenal. And a lot of times telling the story of this, of the struggles you've had and the times that it's been difficult to move or the, the injuries that you've had helps people realize it's like, you know what? Everybody has a story. And just because you see this man or this woman, it's like, wow, I could never be like them. You never know what it took for them to get there or what they're struggling if even when they're there, if they think they have it all put together. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons I want to tell people stories with uh, moving to live. That's a very good point, Ben. I'm glad you bring that up because um, one thing I've been working since I've been in this job is our human performance program um, with the assistance of a lot of other people. And the piece that was missing um, until six, eight months ago was the mindset piece. And I've been saying we have got, you know, we talk about functional movements. We talk about nutrition. We talk about recovery and rejuvenation. We haven't been really been talking about mindset. Um, and, and, and I think the part that you're bringing up is something that I hadn't really been thinking about is showing them how within our mindset, we talk about what mental toughness is and we have, we don't just talk about it. We show them uh, how to become mentally tough on, you know, taking them on a run where they don't know where the finish line is or taking them on a PT session with out in the sand with boats and logs and all sorts of stuff. We have a place called, we call Thor's Playground, which is an interesting place that's got a lot of interesting objects and challenges out there. And they will be out there hot and sandy and and, uh, and, and they don't know how much longer and it builds mental toughness, right? Um, but then we also talk about uh, strategies, uh, visualization. We talk about um, breathing techniques. We talk about goal setting and that stuff. But then we also demonstrate it. Um, through what we do. But one thing we have not, I've not covered in the mindset that is, is, is like you're talking about sharing with, Hey, this is how 
movement has kept me going these all these years and these are the struggles I've had and these are the movement so I think that's important I have been part of my program though is bringing people in to talk about um, mindset um, and I've, I've got a number of uh, people that on my list that I want to bring in but I have one guy in particular um, his name's Ramesh Hadassin and I can't tell you his whole story but he has just got a a story of resiliency. I mean, from his day, from, from growing up till since he joined the Navy and he recently retired about a year ago at 20 years in the Navy. And he retired as an EOD officer, but he did a variety of things in the Navy. Um, but I bring him in. I brought him in twice since I've been here to talk to the students about uh, mental toughness and resiliency. And, and I think, uh, I, I, you know, I always think, well, I don't really have any safe thing to say to these kids about, mental resiliency compared to someone like Ramesh or, or others that I've, I've talked about, but I think you're, that's a perfect idea of something to, to discuss. I'm curious, and you may not want to talk too much about this. Uh, you've been in the Navy quite a, quite a while, a large number of years, and you've seen younger uh, people come in. Have you noticed that it's easier or harder to teach mental toughness skills now than say maybe it was 15 years ago or is it basically similar, maybe new techniques and new ways that gets the point across easier? Some people would tell you this generation is different. I don't think, yeah, they're different, but it's the same, right? It's the same as your dad said about your generation or my dad said about my generation. They're, they have different issues, but I don't think they're any different. I don't think they're any weaker. I don't think they're any less mentally tough. Um, but they do have different challenges, right? They do have different things they focus on. They're a lot smarter. They have a lot more access to knowledge and access to um, information, I should say, than we did. Um, we had to read a book to get information. Now you can listen to podcasts and get a lot of information that, you know, really. And, and then they're exposed to people's um, philosophies, whether it's exercise or whatever, and where they may or may not have come in contact with people. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to David Goggins, but he's a retired seal who's, who, who, who just has a philosophy that might not work for everybody, but dude, it works. And I've had a number of students ask me, hey, sir, you know who David Goggins is? And they're like, yeah, I know who he is. And they've read his books. They've listened to his podcast. And they take on his mental toughness and freaking challenge yourself, push yourself. So I don't think it's any, it's definitely different, but I don't think it's any less than it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. It's just different. I think one of the things that it's most interesting about Commander Sam Brassfield is the fact that he is active for quite a few years and he still has bucket list items. And I, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about this because you put this in your uh, bio form that you filled out. Your goal at some point, having done a number of Ironmen, having done uh, a couple of a number of marathons quite successfully is you want to tackle a hundred mile race. And I guess personally, I know why, but for listeners who may not understand why, why do you want to run a hundred miles? Why not? <laughs> that's that's the easy answer. I think that's uh, Edmund, Sir Edmund Hillary was asked, why do you, and I may be getting the person wrong, but why do you want to climb Everest? It's like, well, because it's there. 
But a lot of people, I mean, I know the, the common is as you get older, you kind of sit back and rest on your laurels or you say, well, I'm too old to do something like this. And quite honestly, you may never be able to run 100 miles, but what is it that keeps the goal? I know one of the questions I ask for FitLab Pittsburgh, my sister podcast, is what's on your bucket list item? Yeah. Item or items on your list that you want to do movement related. And I'm surprised it's pretty evenly divided. There's probably about half of them who have some bucket list item. Um, some of them pretty interesting and about half of them say, well, I can't really think of anything that I really want to do before I die. And like, you've got this hundred mile thing. I know for me, my goal is I want to do a one day rim to rim Grand Canyon hike slash run. I want to do that too. So let's do it together, Ben. Well, we'll, ha we'll have to, we'll have to communicate, keep communicating and do that because some uh, May or some October, which are the two months that are best to do it, we should uh, go and do that. But yeah, so on, on the hundred, to answer your question on the hundred milers, so um, I've had fits and starts where I, I was going to train for one. Um, I've done a number of 50 milers. I've done some 50 Ks. I did one stage race where it was um, like 18 miles one day, 20 the next, 22 the next, um, running different mountains, very difficult. It was basically like doing three back-to-back -back mountain marathons. Um, but I've always wanted to do a hundred miler. I say always for many years, I've wanted to do a hundred miler. Um, but I'll tell you what got me going for this one. I'm doing it in January, late January. Um, I have a good buddy who started a nonprofit. His name's Justin Matichek. He started a nonprofit called Veterans Adventure Group. I met Justin. We were stationed where I was stationed in Nashville. He was out of the army, um, doing a bunch of things. And we, we met through, through base jumping. Um, which is a whole nother story, but um, a buddy of mine said, Hey, you should link up with, with Justin because he's not only a base jumper, he loves to run ultras and stuff and linked up with him. And we started running. We would get up early and do some trail runs around Nashville and, and chat about the jumps we were going to do around Nashville and, and so forth. And, and he said, Hey, I just did a hundred mile. And I'm like, really? And this guy doesn't really look like a runner. He's jacked. He's an army ranger, but he's, he's you know, muscles. And uh, he was like, yeah. I was like, well, how'd you train for that? He's like, I didn't. I just did it. I was like, wow, awesome, dude. So um, he knew I wanted to do a 100-miler. Actually, when I was in Nashville, I was, I was plotting to do um, a 100-miler across the state of Alabama. I'm trying to think of the name of it. But there's a 100-miler in Alabama. and almost signed up for it, but I just wasn't feeling it. I wasn't feeling the training for it. I wasn't feeling the, the a lot of things I had going on. I had a lot going on in my life with the uh, family and work and all, and I just wasn't feeling it. So I kind of pushed it off. Well, he, he reached out to me about six months ago and he's like, Hey, you still interested in doing that hundred mile? And I said, yeah. He's like, well, I want to, uh, I want to uh, do a fundraiser for my nonprofit. So Back when we were doing those runs together, he was telling me he had this idea for this nonprofit. Um, and he said, you know, since I left the Army, I've had a hard time finding uh, groups to, to do, to train with and do extreme stuff with. Um, and, and, and he said, I missed that camaraderie that I had as an Army Ranger. And uh, he said, yeah, I love running with you. We do some jumps and stuff, but I'd like to start developing groups and not just developing veteran groups to do an event, go out and do a tandem skydiving, they're done with skydiving, but 
train these groups up where they go and they climb, they train and get all the equipment and do everything they need to do to climb Mount Rainier. They climb Mount Rainier and then they regroup and they do it again and they train others and they bring others in and, and then skydiving. So he did a Mount Rainier group and he started this nonprofit and now it's self-sustaining. It's moving out on his own. He's basically, he's the, he's the top guy, but he, he, he step he steps back and lets it run itself. And, uh, He's got groups taking veterans on learning how to scuba dive, doing cave diving. They're doing mountain bike trips. They're doing paragliding. They're going into skydive. Um, and it's not just teach them to do it once. It's teach them to continue in these groups, and they're building teams. It's called Veterans Adventure Group, um, or as I like to call it, the VAG. But uh, anyway, he, he, he asked me, he said, hey, should we should – we, do a fundraiser. And I said, let's do it, man. So <clears throat> we're doing this hundred miler in South Florida. It's called the, the skydive ultra. So it combines two of our favorite things. So we jump in and then we run a hundred miles. Um, and they have a number, they have the 50 mile or hundred mile. And I think they have like 150 miler. I don't know if I'm doing that or not. I'm not planning on doing a hundred miles. Um, but anyway, that's so, so January, late January, I forget the day. It's like the 25th of January. Uh, Justin and I are planning on doing it and we're, we're looking for more people to do it and, and uh, go down there and do our hundred mile. We're talking with commander Sam Brassfield, who is in Panama city beach. I think he's done a great job of explaining the benefits that movement has provided him in life and helped him career-wise, family-wise, stress-wise. I think the last couple of minutes when he's talked about the Veterans Adventure Group and running with other people and the conversations he's had, you've hit on a point that a number of people I've interviewed for Moving to Live have had. Sometimes it's not all about you and it's knowing that there's somebody else out there who's doing the same thing you are or if it's an early morning run or an early morning uh, workout with your facility, whether your workout partner is your dog and your dog saying, let's go, or you know that a colleague of yours is going to be waiting. And if you don't show up, they're going to say, hey, Sam, or hey, Ben, where were you? Sam, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to Moving to Live. It's a little bit atypical because you're our first uh, non-movement professional. But I think from what you've described, you may not have the degree as a movement professional, but the path that you've followed and the influence that you've had on numerous people just by, as you said, leading by example and being somebody who's been active for 30 plus years in your career really shows. And I want to thank you for sharing that with Moving to Live. Oh, the pleasure's been all mine, Ben. I miss our morning runs, Bubba. I hear you. And our bikes, our long bike rides. And, and the, the races where I'd wake up and you'd be over there drinking your insurance. <laughs> And I'll, I'll leave listeners who may be listening this far with one last Sam Brassfield story where you know that in addition to being a mover, sometimes he makes errors. Sam and I agreed to get up one morning and go do a duathlon in Macon, Georgia. And I put Sam in charge of the directions to Macon, which were about 100 miles away. Suffice to say, we got there before the race started, but it was about two minutes before the race started. And I think by the time the... 5K, 30K, 5K duathlon was done. Both of us had learned why if you're going to do physical activity, it's important to warm up. Sam, again, thank you for taking the time to talk to Moving to Live.
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.